True crime books, blogs, TV shows, and podcasts are incredibly popular. In 2019, 15% of all podcasts were true crime, including five of the top 10, and over 44% of podcast consumers said they had listened to at least one. Obviously, when we look at the figures for television shows, the numbers go even higher. Most of the cases examined are, at their hearts, mysteries, which is also the purview of the world of conspiracy. So, this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse, CSI CSI Conspiracy. Conspiracy looks at three crossover cases from three different decades and three lands where the unexplained and the weird meet head-on. We'll look at the Lead Masks case from Brazil, the UK's Zygmunt Adamski case, sometimes called the first UFO murder, and the Yuba County Five, also known as America's Dyatlov. Don't forget you can subscribe, and if you like what we do, you can donate via our Buy Me a Coffee page. I'd also appreciate it if you would review this podcast wherever you listen to it, and also pop over to our IMDb page and give us a review there as well. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in The Clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Killing Mask. That is a song by American guitarist Buckethead, who has performed on nearly 500 album projects and who wears a white mask and an overturned KFC bucket on his head, sometimes just painted white like the mask is, and sometimes with an orange sticker on it that says, Funeral. He is kind of awesome. We start on a hill in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. On August 21st, 1966, an 18-year-old boy, let's call him a boy, was running up Moro de Vintem, or Vintem Hill, to fly his kite when he came across two dead bodies. Being a good lad, he reported this to a local adult who informed the police, and the police got there the following day, because, you know, things move slowly in Rio. They found the bodies of two adult males lying next to each other. They were both wearing formal suits, waterproof coats, and had lead masks over their eyes. Nearby, there was an empty water bottle and two damp towels. One of the men had about 4,000 cruzeiros on him, which is about one U.S. dollar at the time, and the other had 157,000 cruzeiros, about $11. There were no signs of a struggle and no obvious injuries on the bodies. They were just dead. Also nearby was a notebook that had a list of electronics components and the following odd entry in it, quote, 1630, be at the specified location. 
1830 ingest capsules after the effect protect metals await signal mask. Obviously, that's a translation of the Portuguese, but the grammar in the original is just as offbeat. That last part, after the effect protect metals await signal mask, probably meant something like, after feeling the effects of the capsules you ingest, protect half your face with the masks and wait for this signal. Maybe. These weird notes and these weird masks are why this has come to be known as the lead masks case. The mystery here was not who they were. That was quickly determined. They were 32-year-old Manuel Pereira de la Cruz and 34-year-old Miguel José Viana, both happily married electronics repairmen from Campos dos Gotacazas, a city about 280 kilometers, 173 miles, north of the Rio Hill that they were found on. Apparently, they'd left their hometown on the 17th, telling people they were off to buy some electronics components. Some accounts say they rented a car, other people say they took a bus. In either case, they ended up in Niteroi, across the bay from Rio, at about 14.30, 2.30 in the afternoon. They went into a shop where they each bought a raincoat, then they bought some bottled water at a bar. People who saw them, including the waitress who sold them the water, said that they seemed nervous. And that was the last time they were seen before being discovered by the young kite runner four days later. For some reason, it took a few weeks before an autopsy was performed, and by then their organs had decayed too much to yield any useful information. What could possibly have killed them? And what was with those weird masks made of lead, which clearly they had made themselves? Impossible to say. Investigators went up north to talk to people who knew the dead men. Cruz's wife told them that their friend, Elicio Gomez, with an S, had had an argument with her husband just before he and Viana had left. They interviewed Gomez, and he was not especially forthcoming, so they arrested him, quote, for making contradictory statements, and under police grilling, he came clean with a rather offbeat tale. Gomez and the two deceased men weren't friends, but also members of a group of what he called, quote, scientific spiritualists, who used electronic equipment in seances and for other paranormal activities. An experiment they'd recently worked up was designed to open communications between themselves and beings they believed lived on Mars. When they turned on the equipment there in Cruz's yard, it overheated and exploded. Other people would later confirm this story. Gomez also told them about something that had happened back on June 13th, two months earlier. Cruz and Vieira had invited Gomez and other scientific spiritualist friends to meet them at the beach in the resort town of Atafona, about 35 kilometers west of Campos. When everybody got there, a brightly glowing object appeared in the sky, slowly descended and hovered over the beach for about five minutes. Then it started rising and suddenly exploded in a blinding flash. The shockwave shook buildings as far away as 15 kilometers and the incident was written about in the local papers. Fishermen in the area also claimed to have seen a UFO fall into the waters of the sea. Strange stuff, but Gomez and others in this little club all had alibis for August 17th, the day the two men probably died up on that hill outside Rio, and so Gomez was free to go. 
Two weeks or so after the bodies were found, a self-styled, quote, professor of yoga told the newspaper Fola de Sao Paulo that local spiritualists often took LSD and he thought the two men had died from an overdose of LSD. Apparently, this guy's advanced yoga training did not inform him that it is pretty much impossible to die from an LSD overdose. The whole thing was chalked up as just another weird mystery in the Ciudad Marvelosa, or the Marvelous City. But UFOs would continue to crop up in the case, and police kept the file open, continuing to poke around in a somewhat lackadaisical faction, finding more weirdness associated with the case. Like that the same day the two men had gone shopping in Niteroi before heading up the hill, a woman and her three children were driving along when they saw a glowing orange oval in the sky with a sort of band of fire around its edges, a UFO. It moved up and down, seeming to sort of rise and then fall, while drifting across the bay towards Viten Hill, about 22 kilometers away, where it hovered. The woman, Gracinda Barbosa Cantino de Sosa, was a lady not known for having fanciful notions. She told her husband about it, so he promptly went to investigate, but he himself saw nothing. A few days later, when the husband saw an article about two bodies found on that hill, he went to police and told them what his wife had told him. They said, yeah, yeah, they'd heard similar reports from other people about the same thing on the same day, the 17th. A local newspaper wrote up a collection of sighting stories and published it on August 25th. One local reporter did some digging and found that back in 1962, the body of a television technician named Hermes was found atop Moro de Cruziero, and he was also wearing a homemade lead mask. Now, this hill is quite far from either Campos or Moro de Vintem, but still a bit of a match. However, the details in the article were pretty spotty, and some people thought maybe this writer had just made this whole thing up. More investigations discovered a book had been found in Viana's workshop that talked of masks made of lead, luminosity, and spirits. His sister said that Vienna, on June 13th, the day of that strange explosion in Atafona, said that he was going to be, quote, carrying out an important mission soon, but he could say no more because he was sworn to secrecy. The whole lead masks affair was written about in the March-April 1967 edition of Flying Saucer Review by Charles Bowen, and that seemed to be that. The story was regulated to the sidelines as life continued to move on. And so time passed. A year after the strange deaths, on August 19, 1967, the tabloid paper Ultima Ora, which means like last minute, said police were still poking around into the case, however, and now they thought maybe the two men had been killed or had died somewhere else and then been moved to Vintain Hill in a car, a car that they were actively looking for. They were entertaining the idea that maybe the two men had met an unfortunate end at the hands of others, maybe died after being exposed to chemicals they were using to try and contact aliens, or maybe they had some kind of strange suicide pact. On August 26th, the bodies of Cruz and Viana were exhumed and autopsies performed. On September 3rd, the Rio Daily paper Corajo de Mania, 
The Morning Post said the cops were looking into spiritualist groups in the region and, before going to that bar to buy water, the pair had stopped in an electronic store where they met a person who, police speculated, perhaps killed them later. And then more time passed. On June 28, 1968, Eight, the paper O Globo, the Globe, said a witness had come forward and said that they had seen Cruz and Viana talking to a blonde-haired foreigner in a jeep on the road that led up to the peak of Vitam Hill. Several months later, around February 23, 1969, the following year, several papers said a mob-connected criminal serving a 50-year sentence in Sao Paulo named Hamilton Bazzani had made a confession that had solved the case. He said he and three other men had been asked to go to a spiritualist center in Niteroi where they met Cruz and Viana with an eye to robbing them of a briefcase the two had that was filled with money. The two men participated in a seance in the spiritualist center and then Bazzani and his thugs drove the two men to the base of Vitam Hill. The thugs got out of the car and took the two men into the underbrush. About a half an hour later, they returned without Cruz and Viana but with their briefcase. They told Bizzani, who had waited in the car, not to worry because they'd forced the two victims to take poison and the two men would soon be dead. If this story is true, why would Cruz and Viana, poisoned at the base of the hill and then robbed, have put lead masks on and then walked up to the top of the hill where they then died? After the criminals drove away, why wouldn't they have just walked to a nearby phone or call for an ambulance or maybe for the police? Because there are houses and businesses all around the hill. It's actually in the middle of a residential district and there are houses readily reachable and available. UFO folks said that this whole tale by this prisoner, Bazzani, was a lame attempt at a cover story to hide the fact that the authorities knew that the two men had been killed by UFOs and that aliens were visiting the Rio de Janeiro region. It was all very weird and unsatisfying regardless of what you actually believed. And so the case went cold again. Then in 1980, UFO and paranormal guy Jacques Vallée heard about the lead masks case and thought he'd try to breathe some warmth back into this cold case. So he traveled to Rio and went to Ventham Hill with a small group, his wife, a journalist who'd written about the case in the 1960s, a detective who had worked the case, a photographer, a French teacher in the area who acted as translator, and the first adult on the scene way back on August 21st, 1966, who'd been alerted by the kite-flying boy and the man who'd first called the police. Unfortunately, in his account of everything, Valine never divulges this particular man's name, so this cannot be verified. Going to the spot where the bodies were found, Vali was struck that no plants seemed to grow on the spot, even 14 years later. Well, that was odd. The local man who'd first seen the body said that when he got there, there was no smell and no animals had had a go at them, even though they'd been there for three, maybe four days. Also odd. The man went on to say the bodies looked like maybe they'd had burns, but it was hard to say because they had decomposed so much. He also said the lead masks were next to the bodies, not on their faces, and there was also a crushed piece of aluminized blue and white paper, some cellophane soaked in a chemical substance, and a handkerchief with the initials AMS. Vali also spoke to Cruz's friend, Elicio Gomez, the man who told the police about the explosion on the beach in Atafona a couple of months before the two men had died. 
Though for some reason, Vali calls him Elicio Crea de Silva instead of Gomez. After hearing a first-hand account about the two explosions, first the one in Cruz's garden and then the other one at the beach, and talking to the two dead man's families, Vali concluded that all of this was caused by homemade bombs manufactured by Cruz. Why Cruz was making bombs is unclear, and Vali also doesn't know what to make of the fishermen who said they'd seen a UFO crash into the ocean. He does make reference to a UFO sighting above another hill in the same town that occurred in March of 1966, but he fails to connect this to the lead masks case. Anyway, Vali wrote it all up and included it as a chapter in his 1990 book, Confrontations, A Scientist's Search for Alien Contact. Though in this particular instance, he seems to think that it was all non-alien related. Still, Vali had reach, and for many people outside of Brazil and outside of the UFO world, this was the first time that they had ever heard of the strange lead masks case. So what exactly happened? No one knows. That Cruz and Viana were part of a group of people who believed in UFOs and aliens and somehow had that connected with this idea that they were part energy or luminescent spirit and had attached a bunch of new age woo-woo ideas to uh, UFOs and alien visitations. Well, that, that seems to be absolutely true. They also liked building strange devices, a few of which at least had blown up in the past. But what killed them on that day in August 1966? What was the actual cause of death? Well, we shall never know, since the police work was fairly sloppy in the initial stages, and by the time they got around to performing an autopsy, the organs had deteriorated too far to yield any useful information. And so this is a case that remains cold. Working, Working in a Coal, in a coal mine. mine, a song written by Alan Toussaint, first recorded in 1966 by Lee Dorsey, covered in 1981 by Diva for the movie Heavy Metal, and then again by The Judds in 1985. 56-year-old coal miner Zygmunt Adamski, an immigrant from Poland but resident in Tingley, a small suburban village in Yorkshire just southwest of Leeds, went out to do some grocery shopping the evening of Friday, June 6, 1980. He did not return home that night, nor did anyone see him over the weekend. It was quite unusual for him to disappear like this since his wife Lottie was wheelchair-bound and required looking after. Plus, Ziggy, as he was known, had a lung deformity and had difficulty breathing. Maybe being a coal miner was not the best idea, but he was not known to go on walkabout. He had applied to the Lofthouse Colliery, where he worked for early retirement, been denied, and then put in an appeal. The decision was due to come any day, so it also seems unlikely that he would have just wandered off. In fact, it came the very next day in Saturday's Post, and it was in his favor. So he disappears on the 6th. On Wednesday the 11th, his body was found lying atop a 10-foot-high pile of coal in Todmorden, a market town 25 miles to the west. He was wearing a suit but had on no shirt, and his watch and wallet were missing. His clothing was, quote, improperly fastened. His hair had been cut, quote, roughly, and he had only a single day's growth of beard despite being gone for several days. His eyes were open and the expression on his face almost looked like he had been frightened to death. Along the back of his head, as well as on his neck and shoulders, there were what seemed to be odd burns. 
He also had no coal dust on him at all, and it rather struck the police that he looked as if someone had just dropped him on top of that pile of coal from above. The body was first seen a bit after 4 p.m., which meant either that it had been lying up there all day and nobody noticed, somehow someone managed to crawl up there with it on their back and drop it off, or that Ziggy himself had managed to crawl up there all during the day without getting noticed and not getting any coal dust on him. The coroner, James Turnbull, said it was one of the most mysterious cases he'd ever worked on. The burns on the body... He couldn't identify, and Turnbull hesitantly decided that Ziggy had probably died of a heart attack, but left the case open. So many questions remained. What had happened? How had he gone 25 miles and got to the top of that pile of coal without getting dust on him? Where was his shirt? Why was his hair inexpertly cut? And why were the clothes he was wearing put on incorrectly? How did he only have a one-day growth of beard? And what was with those burns? Some thought maybe he'd been hit by ball lightning that would at least explain the burn marks and the hair. Maybe it was burned off and the shirt had been burned away. And maybe in his disorientation, he crawled on top of that coal pile before he died. But of course, that left other matters open. And Turnbull, the coroner, found evidence that an unknown ointment had been applied to his burns, which means the burns happened quite a bit before he died. Well... Maybe someone killed him for some unknown reason, though he was well-liked and in no one's debt. His wife had thought he must have been kidnapped. After all, how did he travel 25 miles? They didn't have a car. Some thought maybe he'd been targeted by KGB agents. After all, the communists couldn't be too happy about one of their own, a pole, defecting to the West. Well, the case was a weird one for sure, and that would seem to be that. Fast forward to November 28th that same year, still in Todd Morden. Local police constable Alan Godfrey was looking into a claim that some cows had gone out and onto a local council estate and were just wandering around. While looking for the wayward bovines, he saw a large shape, kind of like a ball but made of angles, like a rounded diamond, lit up, hovering above the road. It was about 14 feet across and 20 feet high. He tried to radio the police station for backup, but his radio had stopped working. Then, suddenly, the strange object was gone, and Godfrey found himself sitting on the road about 100 feet away from his car. According to his watch, 25 minutes had passed, but he had no memory of that time. He also found his boot was split open, and the foot underneath had a red mark that itched terribly. The local newspaper wrote up the story, making note that Godfrey was also the first policeman on the scene back in June when Ziggy Adamski's body had been found on that coal pile. Ufologist George Adamski, another Polish immigrant but living in the U.S., talked about in a previous episode and no relation to Ziggy, read all about this and promptly declared that his namesake had been killed by aliens and that Constable Godfrey had been abducted by aliens, probably the same ones. Well, a bit of a hoopla ensued, and Godfrey's lawyer convinced him to try hypnotic regression, which is almost never a good idea. While under, he, quote, remembered seeing the diamond-shaped object, then a bright flash of light, and then found himself lying on something like a medical table, being examined by two small humanoid creatures and a tall human-seeming man who had a beard. Godfrey went on to write a book titled, Who or What Were They?, which looked at the Ziggy Adamski case as well as a few other supposed UFO abductions, like the one 
reported by Travis Walton, which was talked about in a previous episode. Some years later, Godfrey would tell another local paper, the Huddersfield Daily Examiner, that, upon reflection, he probably was not actually abducted by a UFO and that these, quote, memories that were supposedly, quote, recovered under hypnosis were something more like a dream or a fantasy. But he's still happy to sign copies of his book and make appearances on the subject. In 2008, a couple of British UFO investigators looked into the case, which was still being talked about in the region, and found that there had been something of a family feud going on at the time that Ziggy died. Someone in the family was having marriage troubles and had temporarily moved in with Ziggy and his wife, but somehow there was some bad blood somewhere, maybe somebody said something offensive, and the two investigators got the idea that maybe Ziggy had been ambushed on his way to the shops, kept in a barn nearby, and then suffered a heart attack and died. But the police never really thought that this was a serious lead. And that is how the story remains today. A cold case with more questions than answers. Misty Misty Mountain Mountain Hop, a Led Zeppelin song from their untitled 1971 fourth album. And then there's the case of the Yuba County Five, often called America's Dyatlov Pass, though it doesn't really have much to do with the weird events that occurred in the Soviet Union's Ural Mountains in 1959, an incident that is covered in great detail in its very own episode of this podcast. For this one, we go to February 24th, 1978, when a group of five friends from Yuba City, California, all of whom had psychiatric conditions or mental disabilities and who all lived at home with their parents, all drove north to Chico to see a basketball game the night before they themselves were scheduled to play in the Special Olympics in nearby Sacramento. And then they disappeared. Months later, four of their bodies were found and the fifth man vanished without a trace. First, let's look at the five friends, who were known collectively by those who knew and loved them as the boys, despite their ages. The oldest was 32-year-old Ted Weir, a former janitor who had a learning disability and showed signs of autism. He also had a voracious appetite, eating, quote, anything he could get his hands on, according to one friend. He was always ready with a smile and prepared to help anybody who needed it. His best friend was 24-year-old Jackie Hewitt, the youngest of the boys, who had intellectual disabilities as well as some physical issues and rather famously hated using the telephone. Whenever he had to make a phone call, it would be Ted who would dial the number and hold the receiver for young Jackie to talk into. Bill Sterling, 29, also had intellectual disabilities, but was always ready to help a person in need. He and Hewitt had once taken a friend of theirs to the hospital after that friend had overdosed on Valium. Now, Sterling's best friend was Jack Madriga, age 30. Madriga had been in the army, even though he had learning disabilities. He hated cold weather, and he was one of only two in the group who had a driver's license. It was his car the boys took that night to the game in Chico, a turquoise and white two-door 1969 Mercury Montego. He was fastidious about his car, which was his prized possession, always keeping it clean and making sure it was locked whenever unoccupied. The fifth man was 25-year-old Gary Mathias. He had also been in the army, but while stationed in West Germany, developed a drug problem which may have triggered latent schizophrenia. He was discharged and returned to his parents' home in Yuba City, getting treatment at a local mental hospital, which did little good. His schizophrenia got worse, 
and he had a number of psychotic episodes, two of which ended with him getting charged with assault. He was remanded to the Veterans Administration Hospital and then under treatment there seemed to improve, finally becoming an outpatient in January 1978, prescribed a combination of two antipsychotic medications. Doctors at the Veterans Administration Hospital said that Matthias was one of their most successful cases and they had great hopes for his future. He continued to receive pay from the Army and made extra cash working for his father's gardening business. And he was the other person who had a driving license. So these are the five boys who'd all met at a local rehabilitation center for people with issues like theirs. And they were united in that commonality and their love of basketball. All five played for the Gateway Gators, a team sponsored by a local charity that helped people with mental disabilities lead productive lives. And they were good, winning enough games that they were tapped to compete in the Special Olympics on February 25th in Sacramento, the state capital about 40 miles south of Yuba City. The top prize if they won that contest would be an all-expenses-paid week in Los Angeles, and the five friends thought their chances were pretty good. They were super, super excited, and they had basketball on the brain, so they decided that the night before the big game in Sacramento, they'd drive 50 miles north to Chico to watch the UC Davis basketball team play against Chico State. They carefully laid out their uniforms for the next day so they'd be ready no matter what time they got back, and Weir actually even asked his mother to wash his brand-new high-top sneakers so he'd look extra sharp for his big game. They then all piled into Madruga's car in high spirits and drove off to Chico wearing only light jackets since it wasn't that cold and they planned to be only gone for a few hours. Matthias didn't even take his medication with him since he thought he'd be back in plenty of time to take his last dose of the day. After the game in Chico ended about uh, 9.45 p.m., Davis won, which made them happy, they drove three blocks to Bayer's Market to stock up on supplies for the return trip. Some sodas, some Hostess pies, a couple of cartons of chocolate milk, and some candy bars. They got to the shop just before it closed at 10, which rather annoyed the clerk, who'd been hoping to close up early, and that's why she remembered them. They then got back into Madruga's car and drove away. They should have gone home about 11 p.m. It was a straight shot south down Route 70 and shouldn't have taken more than an hour. But Weir's and Sterling's mothers waited up for them, but the hours ticked by and there was still no sign of the boys. About 5 in the morning, they started calling around to the other parents, who reported that their sons had also not yet turned up. This was highly unusual since all of them except for Matthias and maybe Madruga when he was in the army, had never spent the night away from home before. Plus, it was now the morning of the 25th, the day that they're supposed to go to Sacramento for their big game. No way they were going to miss that. So, the parents decided that they would call the police and report the boys missing. Police started looking along the roadside of Route 70 and also Route 99, which ran parallel. But there were no signs of the Mercury Montego. A few days later, a ranger for the Plumas National Forest reported that he had seen a turquoise and white 69 Montego parked on the side of the Oroville Quincy Road back on the 25th, but he hadn't thought much of it until he'd seen the missing persons report. He took deputies to it on the 28th, and it turned out to be Madruga's car. The strange part was it was sitting on the side of a dirt road in the mountains 50 miles to the east of Chico as the crow flies and much longer on roads. Nowhere near anything like a major route. 
at the side of a dirt road about 4,400 feet up at what was the snow line at that time of year, stuck in a snowbank. There was some evidence that maybe the driver had tried to gun the engine to free it from the snow, but the thing is the snow wasn't very deep and five athletic young men should certainly have had no problem pushing it free. The car was unlocked and inside they found wrappers from the snacks which had all been eaten except for half of one candy bar and all the empty soda cans and chocolate milk cartons. There were also programs from the UC Davis Chico State game and a roadmap of California neatly folded. The keys were missing, which made deputies think that maybe at first the car had stopped working, but then they hot-wired it and the engine started right up with no problem. There was even still a quarter of a tank of gas. The undercarriage of the car had no scratches or dents, which seemed odd for a vehicle that had been driven on bumpy mountain roads at night, especially this model, which has a rather famously low-hanging muffler. So either the driver had been going extremely slowly and driving very carefully, or someone who really knew these roads had driven it. Now, Madrigal's family said there's no way he would ever have let someone else drive his car, and he had certainly never been in this area before. Also, it was very unlike him to leave the car unlocked with a window rolled down. Most importantly, though, is where the heck were the boys? Search efforts were delayed by a snowstorm that rolled in. The police put out appeals for anyone who had information, and the families offered a reward equivalent to about $5,000 in today's money. This, of course, as so often happens, led to a flood of supposed sightings not only in the Chico area, but all over the state. Two reports, however, seemed significant, though they were somewhat odd tales. Fifty-five-year-old resident of Sacramento, Joe Shones, had been driving his Volkswagen along these same roads up near Rogers Cow Camp the night of the 24th the night the boys went missing. He'd been on a scouting mission to see if the weather was good enough for his family to come up here to their cabin for the weekend. At about 5.30 p.m., he got bogged down in some snowdrifts, and when he got out to push his car free, he felt a sharp pain in his chest. The pain continued and continued and continued. He thought probably he was having a heart attack. He sat down in the driver's seat and tried to figure out what to do. He was feeling weak and disoriented, and night fell on the deserted mountain road, and he was far from any help. He probably passed out because around six hours later, at 11.30 p.m., he says he saw two sets of headlights coming up the road behind him, one of which he recognized as belonging to a pickup truck, which parked about 20 feet behind his car. A group of people got out of the car, several men and a woman holding a baby. He was still experiencing chest pain, but he got out and started yelling for help. The people stopped talking and turned off their headlights. The pickup truck then drove away. A little bit later, he saw what he thought were flashlights in the darkness, so there must be people walking through the woods. So once again, he got out and shouted for help, but once again, whoever it was ignored him. He also thought that he was hearing whistling noises coming from the trees. Still feeling chest pains, he got back in his car and kept the heater on for warmth. Eventually, his car ran out of gas sometime in the wee hours of the morning, but by then he was feeling better, so he got out and he walked down the road downhill to a lodge he'd seen about eight miles away. The lodge manager filled a gas can with fuel for him and gave him a ride back to his car. Now, on the way, they passed the Mercury Montego parked at the side of the road. 
Though no one was in the car now, Sean's thought that maybe this is the area that he'd heard the voices from earlier. However, the families of all five of the boys insisted that there's no way that those five people would have ignored someone shouting for help. And there was certainly no woman with a baby with them. And they didn't know anybody with a pickup truck. Lured by the posters and promise of a cash reward, a store clerk in Brownsville, about 40 miles south of the abandoned car, got in touch with authorities on March 3rd. She said sometime on the 26th, four of the five men who were missing had pulled up in a red pickup truck. Two of them, she thought it was young Jackie Hewitt and Bill Sterling, had used the payphone outside. Though, as I said, Jackie Hewitt was famous for hating to use the telephone. But police said they found her report to be credible. And yet, if that's true, you would assume that they would have called their families. But they never did. The owner of the store backed up her tale, adding that two of the men, he thought it was Jackie Hewitt and Ted Weir, who were best buds and often seen together, had come inside and bought some microwave burritos, some sodas, and a few cartons of chocolate milk, which sounded like the boys. Apart from these two possible sightings, as inexplicable and seemingly out of character as they were, nothing further was heard of about the five men. Search attempts were frustrated by the dense forest, rocky terrain, and bad weather. The police did ask for help from some local psychics. I mean, this is California and there are thousands of them laying around. But they got back nonsensical things like, look for a two-story red house with a gravel driveway in Oroville. And yet police could find no such house. Nothing further would be heard of the Yuba County Five until June when the bodies were found. And the unusual circumstances they were found in is what gives this case its nickname, the American Dyatlov. On June 4th, over three months after the five men disappeared and well into the thaw at that elevation, a group of motorcycle enthusiasts were riding along in the same area when they came across a forest service trailer at a campsite about 19 miles from where Madriga's car had been found back in late February. They noticed the front window had been broken, so they stopped to investigate. Inside, they found the decaying body of Ted Weir. The next day, they searched the area and found on another road about 11 miles from where the car had been found, the remains of best friends Bill Sterling and Jack Madruga. Identification would come later since Madruga's body had clearly been gnawed on by animals, though his hand was found clutching his watch. Of Sterling, there were only scattered bones left, and identification had to come from some teeth that they found. Police thought the pair had died of hypothermia, staying by one another all the way until the end. The parents were notified and a thorough search of the area ensued. On June 7th, Jackie Hewitt's father found a human backbone under a bush about two miles northeast of the trailer that Weir had been found in. This would turn out to be his son's, an identification made easier by Jackie's shoes and jeans being found a short distance away. The next day, deputies found his skull about 300 feet downhill from the backbone and clothing. Clearly, it had just rolled down the slope. So now that was four of the five identified, and the authorities thought that hypothermia had been what had claimed all of their lives. There was no trace of Gary Mathias. But a quarter mile northwest of the trailer, searchers discovered a rusted flashlight and three Forest Service blankets sitting next to the road. 
The strangest scene of all was inside the trailer. Weir was on a bed, completely wrapped up inside of eight sheets. Even his head was wrapped up, suggesting obviously someone else had done the wrapping. Now, he'd been about 200 pounds when he left that evening on February 24th, but when he died, he was less than half that weight. His beer growth was around 13 weeks or longer, meaning he had last shaved around the time he disappeared. He was barefoot, and his feet showed signs of extremely severe frostbite, like almost gangrenous. He was wearing light pants and a velour shirt. On a table next to the bed were some of his personal effects, a gold necklace he always wore, his wallet with money inside, and a ring that had Ted engraved on it. There was also a partly melted candle and a gold watch with a crystal missing, but his family said that watch was not his. Matthias's tennis shoes were also inside the trailer, but Weir's shoes were missing. Now, though the trailer had a fireplace and there were plenty of matches and many paperback books that could have been used to start a fire, no one had started a fire. The trailer also had a butane tank and a whole heating system which had not been turned on. Inside some lockers, there was heavy winter clothing, and yet none of the men had gotten the idea to take these out and warn them, which certainly would have kept them warm enough. From a shed outside the trailer, some sea ration cans had been brought in and opened with a P-38 can opener, which is like the ones used in the military, so really only Matthias and Madruga would have been familiar with how they work. The contents had been eaten, but only 12 or so cans had been used. In that same shed, there were many, many, many more cans of food, plus dehydrated army rations that could easily have fed all five men for over a year, if need be. And yet none of this food had been touched, just the 12 cans. What on earth had happened? Police developed the following narrative. On the night of the 24th, after leaving Bears Market in Chico around 10 p.m., instead of going south, they headed east for some reason. One possible explanation for this is that Matthias had some friends in the tiny settlement of Forbestown, about 20 miles east of Oroville, and the boys would have had to pass through Oroville on their way south, so maybe Matthias had convinced the gang, hey, why don't we just pop over for a visit to my friends? But then they got turned around on the mountain roads, ended up going north when they should have gone east, and then ended up stuck in a snowbank near Roger's cow camp 40 miles away. The car got stuck and the group panicked, not thinking that they would be able to free the car. They got out and looked around for help and came across some snowcat tracks that had been made the day before that actually led to the Forest Service trailer. Along the way, Sterling and Madriga had fallen afoul of hypothermia since none of the boys were dressed for this weather and had fallen asleep at the side of the road where they died and were later found. The other three continued on, found the trailer, and broke the window to get in. While inside, Weir died, so Jackie Hewitt and Gary Mathias, the two youngest ones, wrapped him up in the sheets. Maybe Matthias had left his shoes and taken Weir's because Weir had bigger feet and Matthias probably had swollen feet if he had frostbite. Plus, Weir's shoes were made of leather and so were more durable. Then Hewitt and Matthias had set out to try and find help, maybe splitting up to cover more ground, and everyone got lost in the snow, with Hewitt dying by the roadside about two miles to the northeast, and Matthias continuing to the northwest, eventually dropping a flashlight he'd taken that had stopped working, and three blankets he'd had to keep himself warm. All tidy enough, except there were some obvious holes, like 
How did Weir lose 100 pounds through starvation before dying? It's estimated he must have lived for at least 8 to 13 weeks before he finally died. Yet only 12 cans of food have been opened during all this time. Why had he not eaten more? Cause of death was determined to be a combination of exposure and starvation, but both of these could easily have been remedied. Why had no fire been made? Why had the heating system not been engaged? Why had they not put on the winter clothing that was readily available? No one had even tried to cover the broken window. Also, if they'd all left the car by the side of the road, why had they walked uphill and not downhill the way that they'd come? To get to where the car was found, they must have passed that lodge that Joe Shawns made it to, and that was only eight or so miles away. But instead, they'd walked uphill for almost 20 miles before finding that trailer. And yes, they all had disabilities, and yes, sometimes they could get confused about things that many of us would think of as common sense. But surely it's not the case that all five of them completely panicked and all reason fled out the window. Now, as for Joe Sean's testimony, he admits he was in pain for hours and hours and hours, and he could easily have been hallucinating. As for the clerk and owner from the store who said four of the five showed up on the 26th in a red pickup truck, well, they must have been mistaken. Although, Sean's thought he also saw the headlights of a pickup truck at one point during his ordeal. Jack Madriga's mother Melba said the only thing that could possibly have compelled the five boys onward is what she termed, quote, some force, meaning other people. Quote, we know good and well somebody made them do it, she said. One of the key pieces of information for her was her son's car. He would never have left it unlocked with a window down like that. Quote, he was either tricked or threatened, she told the LA Times. She did not believe that he drove up that mountain on his own initiative. Ted Weir's sister-in-law said she thought the boys had maybe seen something at the basketball game that maybe they shouldn't have and then someone had chased them. She found it striking that the man apparently continued to feel the need to move forward after leaving the car instead of retracing their steps back to where they had already been, an area which would be at least somewhat familiar. What could make them do that except something chasing them? Some people note the car keys were never found, though honestly I don't think that sounds that odd. If Madriga had had them on him and then died by the side of the road and then animals had savaged his body for several weeks, the keys are probably there under some leaves near where his remains were found. As for Matthias, what happened to him? His body was never found, so could he have survived? Maybe he had a mental breakdown and hunted his friends, causing them to hole up and eventually perish? Unlikely, since the medication he'd been on was working extremely well and schizophrenics aren't usually dangerous. Yes, he'd been arrested twice for assault before, but that was before the treatment he was currently on. And the real question is why not one of them thought to go back to the car after they left it. Even if just one of them had done so and just stayed there, sure, they'd be hungry, but at least they'd be in some kind of shelter and there was gas in the car so they could have had the heater on. They would have been found the very next day by that Forest Service ranger who went past. No further information has ever come forward about the Yuba County Five, and it remains a mystery today. Yuba County Sheriff Jack Beecham probably said it best when he described this case as, quote, bizarre as hell. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate 
in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.